Time for a quick ad break. Beyond Solitaire is proudly sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations, and they are launching their Kickstarter campaign for 500-Year-Old Vampire at the end of March. Designer Jason Cox has adapted Tim Hutchings' solo RPG design to create a cooperative experience that can either be played among friends or as a creative exercise in classrooms. In fact, it is written to satisfy national English and art standards. This one is going to be good, so I recommend you check it out. I also want to put in a quick plug for myself. I absolutely love working on Beyond Solitaire, and I wish I had more time to put into it. You can help me make that possible by giving to my Patreon at patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire. My ultimate goal is to get to a point where I no longer have to teach summer school, so I can budget my time for game work and summer conventions instead. But no matter what, thanks for listening, and let's get on with the show. Hey, gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire. And this week on the podcast, I have a very special guest. This is Ian Brown. He is a major in the Marine Corps, and I have brought him on to talk about his work at the Krulak Center. How are you doing, Ian? I'm good. How are you? I am fantastic. I'm super excited to talk to you. Um, so talk to us about the Krulak Center. What do you do there, and uh, how are you liking it? Sure. So... Uh, I, I got to give like the standard boilerplate. These opinions are my own and don't represent the Krulak Center, Marine Corps, any agency of the U.S. government, et cetera. So now that's out of the way. I work so the, I work at the Brew Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare. That's the full name, but we go by Krulak Center because it's, it's kind of a mouthful. And it's at Marine Corps University, at Marine Corps Base Quantico in Virginia. And uh, I've been there. This is my fourth year. I'm going to retire out of there uh, in about six months. But the, the center's been around for five years. So I came in after about the first year, but, um, it's a, it's a very unique place. And our director, like she likes to call it a think tank and do tank, uh, because we we're not tied to one school at the university or, or one specific program. We're a support entity to all the different schools there. And I guess for those not familiar with like the Marine Corps professional military education construct, there's Marine Corps university education command is sort of the umbrella parent, umbrella parent organization, and underneath it are all of the officer and enlisted educational programs. Um, a lot of the, in fact, the majority of those are actually distant students. So like off at, you know, campuses on around all, all the Marine Corps base, you know, major bases around the world. Um, we do a lot of our work with the resident students, but we've tried to, to offer non-resident stuff, uh, you know, as, as best we can with a relatively small amount of people and resources to give those non-resident students, you know, again, some, some unique educational opportunities, but what we were stood up to do was, was find ways to inject more critical thinking, creative problem solving, you know, innovative, unconventional ideas, resources, and, uh, and programs into the, the various schools across the university. And that's, that, that's what we've been doing, you know, the whole time I've been there. Uh, the first year was, was, uh, I wasn't there, but it was very much a, what our, uh, my predecessor called like building the airplane while flying it because they, you know, they had, you know, put in carpet and desks and stuff while, you know, doing, creating programs out of nothing for the schools. But, um, wargaming is one aspect of what we've done. And when I got to the Krulak Center, it, there was a, uh, a lot, lot of stuff was happening in the Marine Corps at, at the same time, which fed directly into like bumping up our wargaming efforts significantly. So I came in in the summer of 2019 we had a new commandant, General David Berger, who took over right about the time I was moving across the country to go there. And uh, he, he got there a couple or I got there a couple weeks later. He published this document called the Commandant's Planning Guidance, which is like the new commandant comes in. That document lays out the big things he sort of wants the Marine Corps to focus on and and, uh, you know, things he considers important during his time as commandant. And, you know, every every part of the Marine Corps is like picking it apart to see which part, you know, which part is he talking about what applies to me. But wargaming as a theme took up, um, I think by theme, took up the most text of any other specific theme in that document. So it takes up a lot of text. He must be pretty, pretty interested in it, right? And want to see more of it. So Education Command put together a, a, uh, a working group to, like, to stand up a, a formal wargaming plan to inject more of it into the schools where it didn't exist and boost programs that were already underway. And so we kind of, we kind of fell in and helped um, help drive that bus a little bit because we were already doing wargaming as part of our our mandate to inject you know more critical thinking, creative problem solving. We had done wargaming tournaments in the past. We had done like standalone demonstration days, you know. But you know now we were at the table to figure out how you bring this in as a educational tool to the formal programs that are there. So um, that that effort has expanded greatly over the last three years. 
And uh, we have to the point where, you know, we have a wargaming director who now sort of oversees and, and uh, supports efforts to, to, you know, have more of it in the schools, you know, replace exercises that used to be done with PowerPoint with a, a war game, a dynamic environment with thinking human beings on both sides. And, uh, and we still run like the tournaments and we still do, uh, you know, demonstration days, familiarization days for those who, you know, I want a war game, but I don't know what a war game is. Where do I start? Right. So we do those kind of things, both for, you know, for students and faculty, but also sometimes we'll get requests from the operating force to be like, I, I want to do it at my unit. I don't know where to, I don't know where to begin. You guys, you know, you hashtag war game on Twitter all the time. You know, give me some ideas. Um, and uh, a part of that is also kind of our my interaction with Sebastian, which is, you know, I'll give him full credit. This is how it all happened. This uh, this discussion here. But we had selected a network of like sort of voluntary subject matter experts to be affiliated with us as non-resident fellows. And we selected, I think, like four four wargaming expertise, particularly. So, you know, that helps me like, I don't know everything about wargaming, but I have some people we can talk to who can expand your options. Maybe they can come and run something for you. If they can't do that, they could at least send you maybe some documentation or game recommendations that I, you know, we can't come up with ourselves. So uh, that's what I'm doing right now. Um, i doing it for uh, another six months and uh, hoping to do it in a, in a continued professional fashion when I get out. Fantastic. So how widespread would you say that buy-in to Wargaming is in the Marine Corps right now? So uh, it, it's increasing. And I think the, the challenge, well, not the challenge, but, you know, um, starting from sort of a very low baseline. Um, so get, getting it out and getting sort of everybody to the same, same basic standard um, is it's not, you know, not going to be overnight. Right. But um, you know, one, having the commandant, the boss, tell everybody to go do it is hugely helpful for encouraging, you know, incentivizing people to find ways to do it at their own units. Um, but also before General Burr took over, but um, his predecessor, I think it was, had laid out a plan and project to develop a Marine Corps Wargaming Center that was going to be a service level building with um, like lots of different, you could bring in tons of players, right? The war games would be run at multiple different levels of classification. So you could get really high levels of detail. Now that, that is a huge investment, what they're building right now in Quantico. So kind of between, you know, between those major things, like, the uh, the buy the buy in was given right the the past leadership and current leadership has said you're, you're going to go do more of this because we think it's useful. Um, so really the 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 project now sort of the like buy in support is up here you know along with some resourcing right like the you know wargaming center is a significant resource uh, Krulak Center Marine Corps University shortly after the planning guidance came out we got a bunch of resources to go do more wargaming for education so now we're kind of like trying to like bring those two I guess a little bit you know for those who can't see my hands like. You know, there's a little bit of a gap, but like we're trying to bring the the gap, you know, the the aspiration and the proliferation closer together. So that gap is smaller. Um, and, we, you know, we're, we're our main focus is professional military education. Uh, but the nice thing is, again, that's all around the Marine Corps. Every base has a satellite thing. So I think we sort of tried to start establishing a foundation at the resident schools at Marine Corps University in Quantico and then use that as your platform to you start pushing it out to the other PME campuses around there. And, um, you know, part of, part of the, our, you know, part of my job too is, um, is outreach and increasing awareness. And so for those, if you're not a PME school, but if you're an individual unit or you're a, uh, if you're, a, you're like a staff planner for a higher headquarters, you can, you know, you find me on Twitter, you find me on our, our email distribution list and we can come out on sort of like case by case basis, provide some resources, maybe run something, and, you know, now we planted that seed out there, right? Now you know about us, you've seen a little bit of it. You go forward and carry that out for where you are because we can't be at Camp Lejeune and Camp Pendleton and Okinawa, you know, 24 seven, we just can't. But we're a 24 seven resource and we're happy to push that stuff out to where, where you know, those folks are and, uh, you know, they build it out where they're planted. So what kind of games are you pushing out? Um, are you, you know, when you're talking about enriching the classroom experience and the decision-making experience, are you doing that with hobby games? Are you doing that with games that have been specifically designed for Marine Corps classes? Or are you pulling in simulations from, you know, other professional work game environments? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> um, so 
when it, when I first got here, we had a kind of like a small, really random selection of some computer games that um, we'd acquired and, uh, and a bunch of tabletop games. And I've got like, we were lucky we've had people, you know, give us, uh, you know, their old game collections, right? You know, my wife wants me to clean out the basement. Here are my games. I hope they go somewhere good. Um, so for the, about the first year I was there, it was kind of, you know, you know, a grab bag of stuff. With the Wargaming funding in Commandant's direction, that became much more formalized. And so one, that's how we have a Wargaming director to provide some oversight. But two, um, one of the big resourcing things was building a Wargaming cloud, a digital cloud environment, which is being built under... Let me get this right. The Microsoft Azure cloud environment, which um, I not, not my area of expertise. But the point is, it's building a a, uh, a digital platform that that's accessible from anywhere and it's machine agnostic. So this this is it's been it was when it went operational patent last fall. And right now we're in sort of like the, you know, the beta testing, stress testing of the current architecture. But it's taken it's been a very interesting relationship between our wargaming director uh, Microsoft and then uh, Matrix Games, Slytherin, you know, commercial game designers. They have a whole series of games that were commercial games. You know, you, you go buy off of Steam for 60 bucks, right? Like Command, uh, Modern Operations, Flashpoint Campaigns, uh, War Plan, World, World War II, Order of Battle. Those have been pulled into the cloud and, and sort of tailorized and customized for the cloud environment so that... Um, so Marines from anywhere can access it. So how is that being used right now? Um, Flashpoint. So Flashpoint campaigns and Command Professional Edition are sort of the two, I'd say, the, the most proliferated for formal PME programs uh, because the level of detail they have, it fits in well with uh, several different levels of the, you know, the, the ranges of areas of responsibility for the different officer PME programs. Um, but also they're super customizable. And as part of the, the collaboration with Matrix and Slytherin, They've built out like unique Marine Corps specific tables of organization and equipment capabilities, you know, scenarios, things like that. So uh, taking the commercial variant and built it, kind of expanded it to our needs and you put it in the cloud environment. One of, one of the, you know, like kind of like I said, I can't be everywhere 24 seven to run a game for you. Um, well, the cloud helps solve that because you just need a login access and a computer with a network connection. Right. And you can get into the cloud from anywhere. And that really helps kind of democratize the access to these resources so that you don't just have to come through Quantico, you know, at, at random times in your career window, see it at a resident school. Maybe you take it with you. Maybe you don't. Now you can punch, you can log into it from anywhere. You have global access. And that's going to be a huge, um, a huge enabler for giving for one, for getting more people to do more wargaming around the fleet. Cause now you don't have to go somewhere special. Um, but also because the, this year with the cloud is sort of the, the first year of um, plugging it more deeply into the formal programs at resident school, you know, go through a year of that. Now we have some lessons learned. Now we can apply those to the distance programs too. So again, like, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. Um, the work going on this year is going to eventually get out to the rest of the, the fleet Marine force and the non-resident educational students who are actually the vast majority of PME students. Most students go to non-resident PME. So now we're able to, to push some of those unique things that all used to only happen in resident out to the rest of the fleet. Now, do I do, uh, there's a number of other games coming online, again, depending on the school. So Sebastian Bay's game, actually, um, our Wargaming director has acquired a large, or is going to acquire a large batch for the enlisted schools, right? Because it's at a, it's sort of a tactical level game, um, um, but it's uh, it's very much, a, it's a good introductory war game, one, but also you can play it in a relatively shorter time, which is important because the enlisted schools have like much shorter curricula than the officer schools do. Like there's their curricula is measured in weeks, whereas officer curricula are measured in months. So they don't have a huge amount of time to like, you know, to go find you. So we need to offer them options so they can execute rapidly. Um, and we've done that. I myself, I've run a number of iterations of the prototype of Sebastian's game for the enlisted schools at Quantico uh, to help, you know, help support their program over there. Um, and then we, we also do, I'll, like I've run, you know, demo days, right? Like wargaming open houses, um, where I'll set up like six or seven games, computer, tabletop, um, to familiarize, you know, faculty and staff and whatever students, whoever are interested. If you don't know anything like common, I say, go do more wargaming, but you've never seen one before. Well, these are some of the ways you can do it. Right. Um, also like wargaming and I'm doing air quotes here. Doesn't always mean gaming combat. 
Um, in fact, when sort of one of the genres I've tried to get myself smarter on to offer more options is games to look at other things besides combat. So uh, for I had a I was at Fort Leavenworth a couple months back for their intro to wargaming course. And um, the final sort of capstone thing was you had to like learn a brand new game and teach it to your fellow students. So I picked this game called Aftershock, which is about like earthquake recovery, which, you know, unfortunately is kind of a timely topic right now. Right. But earthquake recovery and you play the roles of a bunch of different. You can play the home nation government. You can play like a U.S. military task force. You can play a U.N. group. You can play like in this non-governmental organization group. And you have like nobody has all the resources you have a limited pool of resources and you have all these crises breaking out and you have to like sort of prioritize what can we go after um you know who who is everybody's strengths and weaknesses right like home nation they know the land they know they know the people they know the um the infrastructure you know like they and they probably have like really good distribution networks because it's their home right but resources they just got smacked right the resources are wiped out conversely like u.s military man we are good at like building ports, opening airports and things like that um, to open up those avenues to start bringing supplies in. Um, and then UN and non-governmental organizations, you start, you, know, you start bringing the stuff, right? You bring, you bring the stuff, US like task force opens the ports and airfields and home nation uses its local networks to distribute, but you all have to work together and you all have to like, look at what crises you think you can handle with your limited resources, sort of like, on, you know, day one to seven, there's very little there. You have to make some very hard choices about um, do we focus on one area and simply accept that we can't get to these other areas or do you like, you know, nickel and dime a little bits of resources out because, you know, that, that might seem like the right thing to do. Right. But if, if you do that, you might just be wasting those resources because unless you sort of pull them all together in one pack in one package, um, you, you won't actually solve the problem You'll slap a bandaid on it. And then the problem just gets worse and more people suffer. Um, so, so games like that, that you, you explore other hard decision-making problems, but it's not all about fighting or combat or ones that I'm, um, I'm personally fascinated in. And that's, that's why I'll, I'll give plugs to the, you know, the Deets Foundation, their free of last game about the civil rights movement. Um, I just got, speaking of four circle games, I got votes for women and, you know, very, very interested in getting into that learning how to do it because it's still competition and hard decisions, you know, which are things we're trying to teach from the Kulak Center but it's not, not all about war because hey, guess what? Like war doesn't happen all the time. Um, but we may be, you know, a U.S. military may be called on to do things other than war, you know, might be good to have, have maybe gone through a scenario or situation like that in a, in a controlled game environment to learn about some of those hard decisions before you go do all those other things. So this actually leads directly into the next question I wanted to ask, which was, um, you know, what are you exactly using these games to teach? Uh, you know, are you using them to teach very specific, you know, things about history or about logistics? Or is this really more of a general mindset thing that you're trying to use these games to communicate? So I, I hate to say like it depends, but it it depends on <laughs> it depends on the so it depends on, on like so I'll, I'll start with the schools, right? Because each of our PME schools has different learning objectives they want their students to teach at different levels of operations, right? So like our captains are at a more sort of tactical level of operations than our majors who are like our captains might be thinking hours and days, right? Our majors might be thinking days and weeks. Our lieutenant colonels at the war college are thinking like weeks or months, right? Like the strategic, the grand strategic picture. Um, so we try and have games available that, match those those specific needs and the levels they're at so that it feels like it's something relevant you know and it's something our wargaming director has done a lot and this is where like um getting getting matrix games slithering to tailor stuff is really useful is like okay like you i'm just picking an example say the captains they need to have a, an exercise that teaches them about you know um landing a part of an amphibious force logistical planning for the first, I don't know, five days of operations and something that gets them into planning uh, airspace deconfliction for different types of air missions and then indirect fire support missions from the ground through that airspace to the ground on the other side, right? Um, okay, well, we would, we would try and offer them a game that does those things and lets them hit those learning objectives. Um, but what I think is differentiated using the game as opposed to, you know, like doing it all 
via PowerPoint or like slapping stuff on a Google map chit, right. That you do a screenshot of and then sending it to a, a white cell of adjudicators who are sort of, you know, they're applying their professional knowledge, but there's, I think sort of an inherent subjectivity to how you do that. You do it all in the computer game. You have like an actual dynamic red cell that's, that's actively doing their own plan and opposing your blue plan. Um, you're hitting those learning objectives, but you're also hitting what is, you know, arguably one of the biggest learning objectives that a, a leader needs to know in, in combat, especially is things are going to go wrong. Your enemy is going to do things you don't expect. You're going to have to adjust your plan, right? You might have random, random missile blows up your, your ammunition dump and you've lost, like you're down to one day in ammunition of supply instead of five you thought you had. Okay. Well, you don't get to sit on your hands and say, well, that's not fair or that would never happen in real life, right? Bad stuff is going to happen. So you need, it's better to, do that again in a controlled environment where you can fail and learn lessons from that failure uh, before you have to do that for real, you know, when lives are on the line kind of thing. Um, and so for the stuff we do for the schools, that's what we like. We want to, we want to hit those learning objectives because that's a requirement, but doing it in a more dynamic fashion has the added bonus of dynamic decision-making, you know, that, Oh, Oh, poop factor where something happens. I didn't expect I'm adjusting and teaching that, rapid decision-making, that ability to adjust and change your plan in unexpected circumstances is also a useful skill set that we, you know, we want people to walk away from. Um, now, some of the, uh, I'd say for, like what we've used Sebastian's game for has been often exposing the players to emerging or future concepts, technologies that, you know, maybe we only have a little now, or maybe we don't have it yet, but we say we're going to have it in five to 10 years. But it's, it's giving a, a chance, a familiarization. Like one, what's really cool about all these cards, right? They're, it tell, it's like different weapon systems or different ISR systems, but it's also almost like a flashcard. Like, hey, if you've never seen a Chinese hypersonic missile before, this is what it looks like. This is what it's called. This is, you know, in a gamified fashion, this is its basic capabilities. Guess what? It can go really long and really far. And a lot of your, your Marine Corps only organic missile defenses can shoot it down. Well, on the blue player side, you have Marine Corps stuff, but you also have um, things from the other forces, right? Like Army, Navy, Air Force, that one could potentially defend you from that missile. But also when we're talking, you know, about our, our joint operations or focus, you know, against the pacing threat, which is China, right? Like we're all going to be working together. So there might be a time where a, a Marine Corps unit, hey, here's a, you're, you're now like tied in via radio or data link to an Aegis cruiser that can intercept that thing. Right. Maybe if you had a, a basic understanding or familiarization via a game exercise, what the Aegis cruiser could do for you in defending against those missiles, um, you can make more intelligent decisions about how you and that ship are going to operate and how their systems can protect you rather than you having no idea whatsoever and not even knowing that tying into them is an option. Um, and then bad things might happen that way. Um, and then in sort of for the like the familiarization or demo things that I do, like intro to wargaming. It's, it, I don't do the Slytherin or the Matrix game stuff because, like, that stuff's pretty intensive, even for, like, you know, hardcore gamers. I'll do simpler things, like, again, going back to Fort Circle games. There are Shores of Tripoli game. Fantastic. It's Marine Corps history, right? So it's easy, very easy for me to put that in front of Marines, but, like, hey, this is this is what we did, right? So teaching you Marine Corps history, it's a very simple set of game rules, um, but also the, the, the asymmetric objectives and you having to understand what you need to do to win, but also what they need to do to win so you can stop them from getting to that point. Um, it's a fantastic um, demonstration tool. And I'm not like I'm not teaching you the tactics of how to fight wooden ships of the line, right? Um, but I'm teaching you how to balance your objectives. I'm teaching you um, how to, you know, you might have to slap a Band-Aid on a problem over here to focus on a bigger problem over there. And you're always doing it against a thinking human opponent, which is to me, that's inherently valuable in itself, whatever game you play. So this actually um, makes me, I was thinking about this question. We, You've mentioned several times that, um, you know, the reason that gaming is a good educational tool is because it teaches people to respond to changing circumstances, some of which are negative, uh, and that it gives the challenge of like playing against a real thinking human opponent. What evidence have you collected to indicate that this actually does improve decision making and response to negative change among trainees and how are you tracking um the results of the games that you run 
So that, that's an excellent question. And um, part of the answer is that's that part is being built too, because there's actually not a huge amount of like hard documented research on that area. And um, at least from, from the Marine Corps, or Marine Corps University Kulak Center side, part of the project of injecting more games across the curricula has been that assessment piece in find like, you know, is this a better learning method, right? Like, do the students like it more or less? Or are they indifferent to the previous ways of doing it? So for, for us, at least that has been a, a formalized part of this whole process is not just getting the games themselves, but that assessment piece, because sort of our, the longer term vision is if you're, you, you can assign games as homework, right? Well, how do you, how do you measure that against the other students, right? How do you, how do you grade that homework? You need some sort of, you know, metric, some sort of benchmark that you're grading it against, right? So it's not just a totally subjective exercise. Um, and so that I'd say that's kind of a, that's a living process, at least for us, that's going on. I think outside of that, though, that's not something that's really been, this is, you know, JLo's personal opinion here. I'm sorry, JLo's my call sign, Ian's personal opinion here. Um, but I always say that in our podcast, just to make sure everybody knows it's me and not like, you know, not the Marine Corps speaking. <laughs> Ian's personal opinion. Um, it's, it's not well captured. And I don't know if that's because there's simply no sort of centralized discipline that could sort of, you know, give you a common framework for doing it. Or if because, and I, I say this because I just finished reading um, uh, Natalia's book on, uh, what is it called? She's a NATO war gamer and um, sure it's called Wargaming Experiences. Mm-hmm. And she made the point that like, there's no discipline because, you know, sort of your harder scientists don't look at it as a formal discipline and so they don't collect the research. Well, then there's no research to go back and look and say whether or not it's actually a useful thing. And it's this, you know, this, this circular argument that's very, very hard to prove. Um, so I'd say it's something that like the wargaming war community as a whole is conscious of. On Marine Corps University side, the assessment piece is being built into that for what we're doing. You know, but I've, I've also seen, again, folks like Sebastian, they'll try and offer like a post-game survey of, you know, when he runs his games. What did you learn? What did you like? What was terrible? You know, would you would you recommend it? Would you would you do a different audience kind of thing? Um, I say I think there's there's work moving in a more formalized scientific direction to lay out a a a philosophy and a and an intellectual framework. And I I'll throw in there. Um, there's a gentleman over at Swedish Defense University in Stockholm. We went over there last year to do as part of like a um, we were invited to go to a leadership conference, but they also do some wargaming in their own courses. And they have one uh, PhD student through there who is trying to build like a, a completely like philosophical conceptual framework for why wargaming works. Right. Um, and I think once his research is done, that's going to be a fantastic tool, you know, to start getting into that, that hard science of, because, you know, you can tell like I'm passionate about it. I'm sure a lot of the guests in your program, they're passionate about it. And it seemed like it's like, well, it's, it's self-evident, right? Like, of course, war gaming is great. Like everybody loves gaming. Uh, <laughs> students always, students always say like, that was fantastic when they walk out the door. Um, how do you prove that? Right. How is it, how is it repeatable? Um, how is it quantifiable in a way that others can look at and use for their own efforts? So I think the, I, th- I think that still needs to be built. And there's pieces of it out there because of like a, a lot of the better war gamers I know, like they'll do at least like a, a hot wash after an exercise and some sort of some sort of documentation where you get enough inputs. Now you have a data set, right? Like Sebastian has done that, for example, with all like the hundreds of iterations of Littoral Commander he's run. He's got a data set broken down by like demographic of are you U.S. military? What branch are you not? Are you some other part of national security? Are you just like an academic who likes games and capturing all those different responses? it gives you a starting off point, but there's really not a larger overarching framework. And I think that's, that's something that has to be, that, that should be created because I do think it's, I think it's self-evident that it's valuable, but there are a lot of skeptics out there. Right. And it's be great if there was something we could point back to and be like, got the science and the data to show you that you should be doing this. Yeah. And um, I like you am a true believer and there's, you know, but all I have is anecdata, right? <laughs> But one thing I do notice and I would like to see studied actually um, is I both just from talking to people on this podcast and from playing games in my classroom myself, I actually find that I know something's going to be really good if my honor students are skeptical about it. 
because they are so used to school being a certain way and they know how to game that system. So when they sense a rules change, they become anxious and they have a really specific range of responses to that. And so, I mean, I hear what you're saying, right, about wanting people to respond to like an uh-oh moment, to a little bit of pushback, to a little bit of uncertainty. Um, and I wonder if that can be measured because I actually think that the most important thing you can teach a smart person is that being smart isn't enough to solve all their problems. <laughs> and a game can teach you that way better than a PowerPoint. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think, you know, as we started to try and capture some of this feedback, like I, I have my own survey that we offer to everybody who comes through, whether whether it's like a one day demo or, uh, you know, a larger, um, you know, multi-week class exercise. Uh, but a lot of, uh, I'm generalizing a little bit, but a lot of the feedback is, you know, this drove the lesson home a lot more than like what I read or, you know, what we discussed in class, because you get immediate dynamic feedback into things you don't expect. And, you know, we've had our share of skeptical students come through, like there's always one or two who, you know, they'll make some comment about playing Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, why are we rolling dice? Like it's just it's all random luck and chance. And, you know, I, I bite my tongue and I, I don't say, well, did you know Dungeons and Dragons was first advertised as a war game? So uh, if you play it, you're actually wargaming. But, um, you know, I like the chance to, if I can get them in there and get them to participate, you know, I feel like if I'm doing my job properly and I've constructed an appropriate game environment that, that speaks to things I think is relevant, um, I can convert some of those skeptics. And, and that's the best thing. Like I, I, I think it's those converts like who are skeptical will come in and then they see, they don't just see the value, they experience it. And then they walk away with that feeling inside them of, man, I really like, I really learned something. This was a valuable use of my time. I want them to be that seed and go out and plant it like wherever they're going back to. Um, so again, so we can sort of shrink that, that gap between the aspiration and the activity that's actually going on. Absolutely. So you are doing really awesome professional work at the Crew Life Center, but it is very clear that your interest in gaming very much transcends your workspace. So what are you hoping to do after you retire? And then um, what's what's going on with gaming in your, your just personal life and your spare time? Yeah, so um, I'm sure my wife would like to know what my uh, my retirement plan is going to be. Um, <laughs> but uh, now I'm like, I'm, I'm looking seriously at some sort of um, professional, very likely military or national security affiliated wargaming when I get out, because it's, I, I was surprised in my time at the Gulag Center, but it's a growth industry. Um, like there's, there's think tank or like big think tank organizations like the Rain Corporation, all the way down to sort of much smaller groups that uh, they all, they're doing different pieces of the, of the puzzle. And I, I've been learning more about what's out there. And, um, and, you know, now that I know that I can get a job where I can like get paid to design and run games for people, you know, that, that's, uh, that sounds pretty good to me. So, excuse me, probably going to be something, something in that line. Um, in my personal life, I've tried to turn my kids into gamers in various ways with varying degrees of success. I think I've had the most success with my eldest. He's a teenager, but uh, I, I used, I used uh, Star Wars as our sort of common language and uh, I first introduced him to, to Battlefront on the Xbox, which was a computer game favorite of mine when I was a teenager. And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll teach him how to play it. And the old man will beat up on him a little bit, but he beats me like nine times out of 10 now. So uh, it's very humbling, but we play a lot of the Star Wars miniatures games. So um, I play, play the X-Wing game with him, which is like Starfighter to Starfighter combat. Armada, which is like large capital ship fleet combat. And I, I really I love the mechanics of Armada because to me, from a a like a naval, especially a naval perspective, you have to think multiple moves ahead for like where your object is going to be in space because stuff moves and object in motion stays in motion. And our X-wing to a certain extent, but Armada I think does a really great job of, hey, like your ship doesn't just like speed up and slow down on a dime. You have to think about where that thing is going to be in space, and um, and it's not necessarily going if. If you mess it up, you might just like fly right out of the battlefield and now you're no use to anybody. Um, and then we've been we've been um, getting heavily into the painting, the Star Wars Legion game, which is like ground tactical combat. Uh, but I also like Rebellion, which is why I'm, I'm going to be running that up at uh, the Fort Circle, the Circle DC event. And I guess separately, you know, that's with me and my family on my own time. I've, uh, you know, 
would not have thought I would do this a few years ago, but in, in doing some scenario expansion uh, for Sebastian's game at work and then um, just getting exposed to more uh, different games, I'm trying to design you know, my own my own card game now, which is uh, um, heavily influenced by the Star Wars customizable card game that I, I grew up with as a teenager back in the 90s and uh, had thousands of cards. But I, I, I part of it is I, I was interested in like designing my own thing because I've, I've like, I'm swimming other people's waters. I want to try and swim in my own lane, um, you know. But also, as a from a perspective of how do I how do we make more wargaming more accessible to more people, especially in the Marine Corps, right? Where you know we don't have the same budgets, don't have the same money. Wargaming is always a resourcing challenge. Um, how do you get? How do you provide something that is simple um, and has like a very minimal resource overhead? Um, and to me, that was you know Sebastian's game does that that really really well. But I was like, how do, how do you make it even simpler, right? Like, um, so I was like, I remember card game, right? The Star Wars, and, and, and you know, anyone who's played something like Pokemon or any sort of deck building game, like everything you need is in that stack of cards. So that was sort of my design philosophy. And I I went in and I, I'm trying to help gamify different doctrinal concepts for the Marine Corps, um, future, you know, emerging capabilities, whether it's, you know, stealth aircraft or UASs or... Uh, or things going on in cyber and the information domain and the space domain too, which is, you know, new open territory. Um, but still having it like in that one package where everything you need to play that game is, uh, is in one box. And so all you need is like a light source and a flat table, and you can do some war gaming on something that is hopefully relevant to you, but also hopefully entertaining and interesting. Um, yeah, I'll be demoing that as well at the circle DC thing, you know, as a, for anybody who wants to see it. Yes, I will be there. And I actually don't know if this episode is going to run before or after we meet in person, but we are going to meet in person. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that event. So I find it very interesting that, um, you know, you're mentioning a deck of cards and then wargaming the same sentence. I think that that is a really big sign of how that branch of the hobby has changed. What do you consider to be in the world of wargaming? Um, because I think that, you know, people normally think of it as kind of hex encounter, but I also think that's very much in flux now. Yes. Like if you had asked me that question, arguably before I got to the crew like center, I might've said, yeah, it's either hex or counter or like real time strategy, like Warcraft, Starcraft, you know, total war series, what have you in, in, in my time in the crew like center, I've, I've been exposed to a lot more things to like, it's really expand that aperture. So you know, I, I'd never seen like a, I don't know what you call it, like a, a line and node type game. But one of those things that, again, Sebastian, you know, introduced to all of this is the game Friedrich, which actually I was just, I was playing today at the office in preparation for a demo event for the basic school um, next week. You know, but it's, 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 it's an area of movement. It's a, it's a line and node movement thing. It's not hexes, you know, but it, it's still a war game because there's still, there's still combat, right? There's still wins and losses on the battlefield. There's still decision making about protecting your supply lines, um, you know, identifying and with, you know, with the node system, you got to identify those key avenues of approaches, right? Like which which roads um, get me moving to my objective fastest? What what intersections do I have to defend? Um, and but then, you know, expanding the aperture even further to things like um, the shores of Tripoli. That's not hex encounter. That's not even like no node in line. That's like that's a zone type thing. That's still, to me, that's still a war game as well. And then, you know, I, I, I was very heavily influenced by the Star Wars customizable car game. I loved it because it was Star Wars and I was a giant Star Wars. I still am a giant Star Wars nerd. But um, when I started thinking about, you know, a card-based game for modern military concepts, um, it, uh, I, I looked back into the Star Wars game and I'm like, I never played it as a war game. I played it because it was Star Wars and I got to like fly fighters and have lightsaber duels because that, that was interesting. Um, but it had a lot of like the basic problems that a war game that we're trying to use for training or educational value has, right? Like you have limited resources. Um, you can't put them everywhere. You have to figure out like where and how to master forces to gain a, a an advantage against your enemies so you can really beat up on them and cause them significant losses, right? You need to understand how will different pieces of your deck work so that you can do things like ambush, um, do like slow, slow draining attacks on their logistics, right? Not directly attacking them, but if you understand like 
the whole four strain concept, which I won't get into. The point is you can, you can deplete your opponent's resources just by you having units in certain key places where they are not. And that persistent drain is a huge strategy of that game of reducing your opponent's card count, which then limits their ability, the freedom of action to do the things they want to do. And so like looking back on it, like it, it really is a war game and it has a lot of the, uh, the problems that we're trying to present our own military education students with just, it, it was in star Wars and a bunch of cards and I didn't really see it until I sort of, I came to the center and started getting into that more like a different framework of it's, it's not fun. Like there is real learning and insight that you can get from this. Um, although I'll, I'll mention our, uh, the, the son of our namesake. So Brute Krulak, his son, Charles Krulak, commandant of the Marine Corps back in the late nineties, like he tried to get wargaming into the uh, into the Marine Corps to the point of like having someone code a Marine Corps Doom skin so you could go play Doom as like you know with Marine units and weapons. But he he was in our spaces shortly after I came to the center. You know we were, we were talking about the new planning guidance and how wargaming was all over. What was the Krulak Center going to do to support that? You know we're going through all these different you know different uses and the value of wargaming. One of the last things he said was, and remember it should be fun, and. That struck me as, a, as an odd comment at the time from a former, you know, commandant, like highly senior military professional, you know, as well as a guy's a lot older than I am, right? Like, I don't, I don't know, but he looks at it as fun, but our, our perspective on fun might be a little bit different, but he, he said it was fun. And then in the last couple of years, I've come to realize like fun is just a short description for a deeper emotional and mental engagement with the subject matter. Because any, like, if you like doing something, you're going to, actively stay engaged with it and you're going to pull more useful stuff out of it, the more you're engaged. Right. So fun is just a way for me to teach you the things that I want you to learn anyway. And, uh, and because you're enjoying yourself, the lessons stick with you after you walk away. And because Marines are inherently competitive, like you put Marines on two sides of the table and tell them they got to fight each other. Like they are going to get into it. Right. They're going to all the smack talk, um, you know, excitement when your missile lands and sinks a ship, despair when you've lost like a key unit and you realize like you can't recover this like game's going to be over anytime now but that that's emotion yeah that's fun but it's that it's an emotional mental engagement that that you're going to get those things i want you to and it's going to stick with you in a way that if i just told you to read you know read 50 pages about the battle of guadalcanal okay you may or may not remember the vital lessons if i put you on the islands of guadalcanal and i put you in a situation of the japanese and americans where neither one has, you know, complete supremacy and in, in the air or at sea. And you really have to like find those scene, those weaknesses and the temporary weaknesses in your opponent. So you can gain advantage for either like, you know, resupply the forces on Guadalcanal or for the Japanese, like ambush and get after those Marine, you know, Marine and Navy forces, because they, that's all they have. Like if you knock out their Navy, they can't supply the Island and it's game over for them. Um, you will, I think again, I think it's self-evident, but I think you will walk away having a better understanding of the challenges of that scenario if you're more deeply engaged in it because you're you're touching it, you're interacting with it the whole time. Yeah, and I actually think this touches on a point that I really like to hammer home, so we're going to do it. It's like you, you gave me an opening, uh, which is that you know when we talk about games and we talk about fun, that doesn't necessarily mean frivolous. And it doesn't necessarily mean childish. And it's not like, oh, he, he, like we blew someone up. Murder so funny. Like that's not what fun means in this context. Fun means engaging and engagement creates memories and it creates, you know, a deeper communion with the sources. And it's just going to be right. That thing that, you know, it's, it's fun. Doesn't mean goofing around fun means I'm really, really interested in what's going on. And I think that's what it sounds like y'all are going for as well. Yeah. And I'll, I'll cite um, one of our non-resident fellows, so Dr. James Pigeonfielder. I don't know if he's been on the show or not. If he's he not, has. Oh, he has. Great. Um, <laughs> good. Then uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad because this will you know, lay some of the groundwork. But one of the uh, we've asked him to give like wargaming familiar, you know, like why wargame things for faculty development. Um, as well as I think we, we had him on our podcast a couple of times, but he goes, he basically goes through like the construction of imagination imaginary worlds. And once you sort of like, I think I don't know if he calls it like the liminal circle, it's some kind of circle, but it's like basically once you, once you've accepted and you translate into that circle outside of the boundary into that world, 
and you ex sort of accept the rules of the world for what they are, um, you you lose yourself in there, and it become it becomes a new world where new lessons can be learned, even though it's completely imaginary or it's a you know it's it's a bunch of counters on a map, right? You've accepted the reality of that world, and sort of like accepting the reality of a thing, it, it, it's in a sense it makes it more real for you, and so everything that goes on in that world is going to be more real, more impactful to you when you made that transition into accepting it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, he, he's, I think he's one of those, you know, folks out there who started to sort of build this larger framework of like the, the science and the, the discipline behind why should you war game? And, and his description of it is like, it's not frivolous, but it's, it's not like fun is an emotional response. And we want you to get you into that environment where you're emotionally responding to the things that you're presented with. And it could be good or bad emotion, again, emotion, again, right? Like the, like the Marines competitive, like somebody wins, somebody's got to lose. Like you will remember those losses, right? Because you know, we Marines don't like to lose, right? You don't like to lose in front of your buddies too. You don't like to lose in front of your buddies when they're smack talking you the whole time afterwards about, you know, how you screwed it all up, but you will walk away being like, man, I am not going to lose that again. Right. That's, <laughs> a, that's a lesson that sticks with you. Um, and I'll, I'll go back to the, uh, the aftershock game that I, I facilitated for the wargaming course. I'd never seen this game before. Right. And to like, when I first broke it open, I'm like, all right, how does this whole thing work? Cause I'm just trying to like teach it and teach the players so that I, I get done with the course. Um, and I wasn't like thinking really much more about what was in that game. Right. Apart from just learning the mechanics, so everybody could play it. But then as we went through it, um, it, uh, it was a really sobering moment because I, it's a game, right? It's got some cards, it's got little meeples and little plastic cubes to represent supplies. But your challenge is these all these different districts in this nation affected by an earthquake. And every district has a crisis that flips up, right? And then you sort of look at the crises, what the what resources need to be applied to resolve that crisis. And you very quickly realize one, on that first turn, like day one through seven of the disaster, you're not going to solve most of those problems. Um and that's that's a humbling um, realization for, for like I'm with a bunch of military students, right? Like we want we're problem solvers. We want to solve everything, right? Like we want to get it done. And so you turn one, you realize you can't. You got to decide where you can have that impact. And then another piece was all of these crises have the number of people affected. Um, and in that first week, you're talking like like high hundreds or thousands of people. And then when each of those crises, when you fail to solve it. And it goes away and you get to the next one you realize like that wasn't a card that was like four thousand people who were stricken by you know an outbreak of cholera because we didn't solve the infrastructure problem and that crisis is resolved now because they're dead and we failed um and that really like that really put a it 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 made the game less you know fun and i'm using air quotes here again but i like to me at least it made it a lot more impactful in realizing like there are you want to encounter these problems when there are not lives on the line so you can make better decisions when there are, um, you know, but also realizing that your, your job, you know, our job as military professionals, life is always part of the equation. Um, and so when you, when you started doing like the tally at the end of the crises we didn't solve and what that cost, um, that was really sobering for everybody around the table in, in the lives we had failed to save and, and the crises we had failed to resolve. And again, this is a Friday morning, like at Leavenworth, we're all safe. We have all had our coffee. We all had a nice breakfast. And these are just cards with numbers on them. There's no faces. There's no names. But just the, the fact we had all we'd all crossed that liminal circle. We'd entered the environment. Um, and um, that I think that's the kind of impact you can have because it it, it makes it real for you. And it's, it's it wasn't fun. Right. But we were emotionally engaged and we walked away from that that game being like, yeah, if this ever happened, these are some really horrible, hard challenges and decisions you have to make. And when you realize you can't save everybody and you have to sort of decide what, what you can affect with the resources you have, um, man, that's a really, uh, that's a really hard thing to grapple with, but we, we are all going to have to, if we're military professionals, we're all going to have to grapple with it at some point. Right. So let's do it sooner where we can sort of think through some different options and learn how to prioritize resources to have the maximum impact while accepting that we can't solve every problem um, and simply letting go of like your your inherent desire. I want to solve everything. Right. That's 
it's, it's in my it's in my fitness report. I'm a problem solver type thing, right? Well, you never get, there's going to be problems you can't solve, and the sooner you understand that that's a thing, that's a challenge you might have to face, but you're going to have to just go on to the next day and the day after that and meet whatever other challenge comes up. Um, I, that's, I think that's one of the that's that emotional again, not fun, but it's emotional engagement and it's a lesson you walk away with. Honestly, that is the perfect place to stop because that was really good. Uh, so, oh, thank you. <laughs> if people have questions for you, uh, where can you be found online? I'm most active on Twitter. You can find me at Ian underscore TV zero three. Um, or if you follow Sebastian, I appear on his feed all the time. So um, I'm not hard to find. Also, if you want to follow the Krulak Center for my, my professional work, it's at the Krulak Center on Twitter as well. And I think it's the same one. We're on Instagram, LinkedIn, um, Facebook, YouTube. So um, look for the Crew Life Center. We're not hard to find. Um, me, myself, mostly on Twitter. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Ian, for your time. This is a great conversation. I really liked learning about the Crew Life Center, and I hope that I, I just wish you all the best there for the next few months and then at your next landing place. Yeah, well, thank you. And I look forward to finally meeting you and seeing you and everybody else up at the Circle DC event. Yeah, let's get your game played. All right, so for those of you who are out there, um, hopefully you know by now I can be found anywhere online as Beyond Solitaire. Uh, thank you so much for watching. Please like, subscribe, comment, ask questions, and most of all, happy gaming.